so dead you don't even know it. Disturbing, horrific, historical, anomalous, ancient, scientific, sensational, interesting, entertaining, malevolent, metal, criminal, conspiratorial, and occasionally fun and funny. Enter if you dare. Survive if you can. This is The Monster's Lair. Do we ever really know anyone? Despite what anyone tells us, do we really know everything about them? What true secrets they keep, what they do in their free time, what type of person they really are when no one is around? Your neighbor, for example. The person you live right next door to. You may see them every day, sure. You wave to them, and sure, you say hi in passing. You may even know a few details about their life, or you may even ask your neighbor to keep an eye on your place from time to time because you think they trust you and you trust them. But how much do you really know about them? For instance, my neighbor's teenage son, Robert Carter, Cotter, who I've been living right next door to for eight years, was just in the local news here in Fresno admitting that he shot and killed his younger brother and father in cold blood after initially stating it was a murder-suicide attempt by his younger brother. We had suspicions, but none of us really knew the truth until uniformed officers and detectives stormed the neighborhood. Weeks later, the article came out with his admission. What about teachers? Those who we depend on to educate, 
mentor, and sculpt the minds of your youth, and if you grew up like me, did the same for us. How often have you seen in the news teachers who have been fired or arrested for taking advantage of children and their care? Simply look at cases like our previous subject, the butcher of Rostov, Andre Chikatilo, who worked as an educator before becoming one of the Soviet Union's most prolific serial killers and killers of children and women. Then there's the case of Mary Kay Letourneau and her highly publicized second-degree rape of a child, Vili Fualau, who was 12 to her 34. Sadly, this type of thing happens on a semi-regular basis. Even our closest friends and family members sometimes can surprise us. We can know friends for years, only to one day find out who you know them as may not even be their real name, or maybe they lied to you about their age, or even in more extreme cases, maybe they've been getting close to you all this time to take advantage of you and run a scam on you. What about your husband or your wife? Are they really at work when they say they are? Do they even really have a job? Have you met your spouse's family, or did they tell you they don't have any family left? Do you know if your spouse has a criminal history? What skeletons may be in their closet waiting to be discovered? Going too far down this wormhole could make anyone paranoid, but as the subject of this upcoming episode shows us, maybe being paranoid, to an extent, is healthy and safeguards us from being taken advantage of by those who let, who we let get too close. You see, we all have secrets. It's just a matter of how dark those secrets actually are. In this edition of The Monster's Lair, I'll be discussing Herman Webster Mudgett, or is it Henry Mansfield Howard? Or maybe you know him better as Dr. Henry Howard Holmes. Or maybe even best as how the rest of the world knows him as H.H. Holmes. H.H. Holmes was an American serial killer, fraudster, con, con artist, and a trigamist who was active between December 1891 to November 1894. Despite his confession of 27 murders while awaiting execution, Holmes was convicted and sentenced to death for only one murder. H.H.'s Holmes's victims met their untimely end in a mixed-use building which he owned in Chicago, located about three miles west of the 1893 World's Fair Columbian Exposition, supposedly called the World's Fair Hotel, later informally dubbed the Murder Castle. So, with a bit divulged already, let's dive into the depths of the soft, white, criminal underbelly of 1800s America and explore the dark depths of H.H. Holmes's Murder Castle.
The man we know today as America's first serial killer, H.H. H. Holmes, was born as Herman Webster Mudgett in Gilmanton, New Hampshire, on May 16, 1861, to Levi Horton Mudgett and Theodate Page Price, both of whom were descended from the first English immigrants in the area. Herman was his parents' third-born child. He had an older sister, Ellen, an older brother, Arthur, a younger brother, Henry, and a younger sister, Mary. Holmes's father was from a farming family, and at times he worked as a farmer, trader, and house painter. His parents were devout Methodists, raising their children as the same. Herman's mother often preached to her children and was very strict. Holmes's father was an alcoholic and abusive to both his wife and his children. Most accounts state that Herman was bullied as a child, having run-ins with bullies who forced him to face death by making him touch a skeleton in an empty classroom. This introduced him at an early age to death, which he found himself very comfortable around. Herman appeared to be very intelligent at an early age. In an effort to learn all he could about medicine, anatomy, and death, he engaged in the classic serial killer act of killing, mutilating, and dissecting both living and dead small animals. In his teenage years at the age of 16, Herman graduated from Phillips Exeter Academy, a boarding school located in his hometown of Gilmanton. After graduating, Herman married his childhood girlfriend Clara Lovering in Alton, New Hampshire on the 4th of July in 1878. The two would have a son named Robert Lovering Mudgett on February 3, 1880 in Luden, New Hampshire. Herman enrolled in the University of Vermont in Burlington at the age of 18, but was dissatisfied with the school and left after one year. In 1882, he entered the University of Michigan's Department of Medicine and Surgery and graduated in June of 1884 after passing his exams. While enrolled, he worked in the anatomy lab under Professor Herdman, the chief anatomy instructor. Holmes had apprenticed in New Hampshire under Nahum Witt, a noted advocate of human dissection. While during his time at the University of Michigan, Herman began to run scams for financial gain. He stole cadavers from the medical laboratory of the university, burned or disfigured them, and then planted the bodies, making it look as if they had been killed in an accident. The scandal behind it was that Herman would take out insurance policies on these people before planting the bodies and would collect money once the bodies were discovered. Those close to Herman during this time that were housemates of his described witnessing Herman as treating his wife violently and in 1884 before his graduation she became fed up with Herman and moved back to New Hampshire where she would later write she knew little of him afterwards. These incidents give us an early glimpse at the type of violence, criminality, and depravity Herman Mudgett a.k.a. H.H. Holmes, was capable of without even blinking an eye. After graduating medical school at the University of Michigan, 
Herman would travel the country assuming many aliases and working many different vocations, all the while still running life insurance fraud schemes. He was known under the names of Henry M. Howard, Henry Gordon, Horace Williams, Alexander Bond, O.C. Pratt, D.T. Pratt, A.E. Cook, and G. Howell, just to name a few. During this period, he worked as a doctor, a hospital keeper, and a drugstore employee. During this vagabond period of Herman's life, he at one point traveled to Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and got a job as a keeper at Norristown State Hospital, but quit after a few days. He later took a position at a drugstore in Philadelphia, but while he was working there, a boy died after taking medic medication that was purchased at the store. <clears throat> Excuse me. Purchased at the store. Herman Mudgett denied any involvement in the child's death and immediately fled the city. Also during this period, Herman began his womanizing ways. In late 1886, while still married to Clara, Holmes married Murda Belknap in Minneapolis, Minnesota. He filed for divorce from Clara a few weeks after marrying Murda, alleging infidelity on her part. The claims could not be proven, and the suit went nowhere. Surviving paperwork indicated she probably was never even informed of the lawsuit Herman filed against her. In any case, the divorce was never finalized. It was dismissed on June 4th of 1891 on the grounds of want of prosecution. At this point, the man formerly known as Herman Mudgett was a career criminal. He now had his eyes set on a bigger scheme. He decided to make a move to a central location, Chicago, Illinois. Right before moving to Chicago, he changed his name to the now infamous Henry Howard Holmes to avoid the possibility of being exposed by victims of his previous scams and burying the name Herman Mudgett away, so he thought, forever. The plan he had in mind now was much more sinister than simple insurance fraud. Hello, my name is Zachary Mueller. I am the owner of Void Productions and the solo man behind Void, Erschayung, and Acid Sludge. And you're listening to The Monster's Lair. Hey, what's going on, Monsterage? It's me, the monotone with the microphone, the trailer park monster himself, J.D. Hutchins, and I have a question for all of you. Are you guys looking for some awesome merchandise? Well, look no further than Burial 13. Burial 13 is a streetwear brand from right here in Fresno, California, my hometown, and they have some sick, badass, awesome horror and comedy themed designs for your shirts, shorts, and other apparel. I'm happy and proud to announce that the Monster's Lair is an ambassador for Burial 13 Apparel. And by being an ambassador, I can offer all of my listeners a special discount code. That code is TML10. Once again, TML, the Monster's Lair, 10. 
the number 1010. So go to www.burial13apparel.com. Check out their badass merch, their cool designs, and all their products. Pick something you like, throw that bitch in the cart, and in the promo code area, make sure you put in TML10 and save yourself 10% off your next Burial 13 purchase. If you'd like to learn more about Burial 13 Apparel, how they were founded, what they're based on, and what kind of products they offer, you can go back to the beginning of Season 2 and check out my sit-down one-on-one interview with a brand founder, Thomas Burrell, on TML Talks, Episode 1. Monsterage, I appreciate you guys listening. I appreciate all of your support, and this is a unique and cool way that I can help show that appreciation and return the favor. So definitely go and check out www.burial13apparel.com right now. Check out their badass merch, and as always, Monsterage, thank you for listening and supporting the Monsters Layer podcast. I just want to take a couple, few seconds to apologize for all the background notification sounds. Um, You know, talk about phenomenon and synchronicities. No one wants to text me all day or call me. Soon as I start recording for the podcast on the phone, I'm the most popular person on the planet at that point in time. So please excuse the little background dings, pops, pings, and whatever else you hear. Um, You know, this is a DIY podcast. I do approach this podcast with the punk rock attitude of fuck it. So I hope it doesn't irritate you guys too much. And I hope it doesn't affect the listening of the show. And I appreciate you guys looking past it. So thank you. You're disfigured, you're abnormal, you're freaks. Bring me all your weirdos and I will give them a home. The newly dubbed H.H. Holmes arrived in Chicago in the August of 1886 and immediately went to work as a con man. Upon arriving in town, he came across Elizabeth S. Holton's drugstore at the northwest corner of South Wallace Avenue and West 63rd Street in Inglewood. Holton gave Holmes a job, and he proved to be a hard-working employee, eventually buying the store. With money he earned from the store, Holmes purchased an empty lot across from the drugstore where construction began in 1887 for a two-story mixed-use building with apartments on the second floor and retail spaces, including a new drugstore. Holmes had a daughter with Murda, who he named Lucy Theodate Holmes, who was born on the 4th of July, 1889, in Inglewood, Chicago, Illinois. Holmes lived with Murda and Lucy in Wilmette, Illinois, and spent most of his time in Chicago tending to business. While having the building built, Holmes employed many different builders, architects, designers, and contractors, usually only having them work for a few weeks before firing them. His reasons for this were so that no one builder knew the true schematics of the entire property 
as Holmes was planning to use this building for insidious means. When Holmes declined to pay the architects or the steel company Atna Iron and Steel, they sued in 1888. A creditor of Holmes named John de Bruel died of apoplexy on April 17, 1891 in the drugstore. It is unknown if Holmes was involved with his demise. In 1892, Holmes added a third floor, telling investors and suppliers he intended to use it as a hotel during the upcoming World's Fair Columbian Exposition, though the hotel portion was never fully completed. In 1892, the hotel was somewhat completed with three stories and a basement. The first floor featuring the storefront. The second story consisted of his elaborate torture rooms, which contained a chute that led directly to the basement. The third floor held more apartment rooms, and there were soundproofed rooms and mazes of hallways, some of which seemed to go to nowhere. Many of the rooms were outfitted with chutes that would drop straight down to the basement, where Holmes had acid vats, piles of quicklime, and a crematorium to dispose of his victims' bodies. With his murder castle established, it was time for Holmes to get to some real work, earn some serious money, and escalate his criminal empire to new levels, but not before he befriended yet another female companion, of course. Holmes married Georgiana Yoke on January 17, 1894, in Denver, Colorado, while still married to both Clara, whose divorce was never finalized, and Murda, whom he now had a child with. One of Holmes's very early murder victims was his mistress, Julia Smythe. She was the wife of a Ned Connor who had moved into Holmes's building and began working at his pharmacy's jewelry counter. After Connor found out about Smythe's affair with Holmes, he quit his job and moved away, leaving Smythe and her daughter Pearl behind. Smythe gained custody of Pearl and remained at the hotel continuing her relationship with Holmes. Julia and Pearl disappeared on Christmas Eve of 1891 before the completion of the building and Holmes later claimed she had died during an abortion, though what truly happened to the two was never confirmed. Another likely early victim of Holmes was Emmeline Sagrand, who began working in the building in May of 1892 and disappeared that December. Another woman who had vanished mysteriously, Edna Van Tassel, is also believed to have been among Holmes's victims and one of the first to meet her end in the now fully functional murder castle. Holmes's usual murder method was by suffocation of his victims, including an overdose of chloroform, overexposure to lighting gas fumes in one of his many torture chambers, and trapping his victims in an airless vault room, to give some examples. Holmes also claimed to have used starvation and burning victims alive. Once a victim was deceased, they would go straight down the chute from the room they died in into Holmes's basement, and here he would dissolve their remains in a vat of acid, dissolve them in quicklime, dissect them, mutilate them, 
or burned them in his furnace. While working in Chicago's Chemical Bank Building on Dearborn Street, Holmes met and became close friends with a man named Benjamin Peitzel, a carpenter with a criminal past who was exhibiting in the same building a coal bin he had invented. Holmes quickly befriended the criminally-minded, crooked businessman and used Peitzel as his right-hand man for several criminal schemes. A district attorney later described Peitzel as Holmes's tool, his creature. One of their first scams together was a con job, naturally. In early 1893, a one-time actress named Minnie Williams moved to Chicago. Holmes claimed to have met her in an employment office, though there were rumors he had met her in Boston years earlier. He offered her a job at the hotel as his personal stenographer and she accepted. Holmes persuaded Williams to transfer the deed to her property in Fort Worth, Texas to a man named Alexander Bond, an alias of Holmes's. In April of 1893, Williams transferred the deed with Holmes serving as the notary. Holmes later signed the deed over to Peitzel, giving him the alias Benton T. Lyman. The next month, Holmes and Williams, presenting themselves as man and wife, rented an apartment in Chicago's Lincoln Park. Minnie's sister Annie came to visit, and in July she wrote her aunt that she planned to accompany Brother Harry to Europe. Neither Minnie nor Annie were ever seen alive again after July 5th, 1893. Another thing that Holmes and Peitzel engaged in was the selling of some of his victims' skeletons. Holmes had an entrepreneurial spirit, after all. Based on his former medical education and his connections in the medical industry, he was able to sell skeletons of some of those he killed to medical labs and schools without question. He, and sometimes a hired assistant, most likely most of the time Peitzel, were accused of stripping the flesh off the bodies, dissecting them, and preparing the viable skeletons. The rest of the remains would be tossed in Holmes's pits of lime or acid, effectively breaking down the remaining evidence. Furniture suppliers once found Holmes was hiding their materials for which he had never paid in hidden rooms and passages throughout the building. Their search made the news, and investors for the planned hotel pulled out of the deal when a jeweler in the building showed them the articles. In 1894, some police officers inspected the hotel while Holmes was out. During the inspection, they found rooms with hinged walls and far false partitions, rooms linked with secret passageways, and even airtight rooms that were connected to pipelines filled with gas, which Holmes used as gas chambers. They also discovered the chutes Holmes used to deliver bodies to the basement, and once there, they found the surgical tables, an array of medical tools Holmes used to dissect them before selling their organs and bones on the black market and to medical institutions. With his property compromised, insurance companies beginning to catch on to his schemes and wanting to press him for arson, and investors pulling out of his hotel, Holmes left Chicago in the July of 1894. 
He then resurfaced in Fort Worth, Texas, where he had inherited property from the Williams sisters at the intersection of modern-day Commerce Street and 2nd Street. Here, he once again attempted to build an incomplete structure without paying his suppliers and contractors. This building, unlike the former of his properties, was not a site of any additional killings. Also in the July of 1894, Holmes was arrested and briefly jailed for the first time on the charge of selling mortgaged goods in St. Louis, Missouri. He was promptly bailed out, but while in jail, he struck up a conversation with convicted outlaw named Marion Hedgepith, who was serving a 25-year sentence. Holmes had concocted a plan to swindle an insurance company out of $10,000 by taking out a policy on himself and then faking his own death. Holmes promised Hedgepith a $500 commission in exchange for the name of a lawyer who could be trusted to perform the scheme. Holmes was directed to a young St. Louis attorney named Jephthah Howe. Howe was in practice with his older brother, Alfonso Howe, who had no involvement with Holmes or Peitzel or their fraudulent activities. Jephthah Howe, however, found Holmes' scheme brilliant. Nevertheless, Holmes' plan to fake his own death failed when the insurance company became suspicious and refused to pay. Holmes did not press the claim. Instead, he concocted a similar plan with Peitzel. Peitzel agreed to fake his own death so that his wife could collect on the $10,000 of life insurance policy, which she was to split with Holmes and Jephthah Howe. The scheme, which was to take place in Philadelphia, called for Peitzel to set himself up as an inventor under the name B.F. Perry and then be killed and disfigured in a lab explosion. Holmes was to find an appropriate cadaver to play the role of Peitzel. Instead, the ever-devious Holmes turned the tables and killed Peitzel, his only real friend and longtime partner in crime, by knocking him unconscious with chloroform and setting his body on fire with the use of benzene. In his confession later, Holmes implied Peitzel was still alive after he used the chloroform on him before he set him on fire. Holmes collected the insurance payout on the basis of the actual corpse of Peitzel. Holmes then went on to manipulate Peitzel's poor, unsuspecting wife into allowing three of her five children named Alice, Nellie, and Howard to be placed in his custody. The eldest daughter of the baby remained with Miss Peitzel. Holmes and the three Peitzel children traveled throughout the northern United States and into Canada. Simultaneously, he escorted Miss Peitzel along a parallel route, all the while using various aliases and lying to Miss Peitzel concerning her husband's death, claiming Peitzel was hiding in London, as well as lying to her about the true whereabouts of where her three missing children were. In Detroit, just before entering Canada, they were only separated by a few blocks the entire time. In an even more audacious and truly heartless move, Holmes was staying at another location with his wife 
who was unaware of the entire affair. Holmes would later confess to murdering the children Alice and Nellie by forcing them into a large trunk and locking them inside. He drilled a hole in the lid of the trunk and put one end of a hose through the hole, attaching the other end to a gas line to asphyxiate the girls. Holmes then buried their nude bodies in the cellar of his rental house at 16 St. Vincent Street in Toronto, Canada. This home and address thankfully no longer exist as St. Vincent Street having long since been realigned into a part of Bay Street. Frank Geyer, a Philadelphia police detective, assigned to investigate Holmes and find the three missing children, found the decomposed bodies of the two Peitzel girls, Alice and Nellie, in the cellar of their Toronto home. Detective Geyer wrote, The deeper we dug, the more horrible the odor became, and when we reached the depth of three feet, we discovered what appeared to be the bone of the forearm of a human being. Gare then went to Indianapolis, where Holmes had rented a cottage. Holmes was reported to have visited a local pharmacy to purchase the drugs which he used to kill young Howard Beitzel, and a repair shop to sharpen the knives he used to chop up the body before he burned it. The boy's teeth and bits of bone were discovered in the Indianapolis Holmes chimney. Holmes's murder spree finally ended when he was arrested in Boston on November 17, 1894, after being tracked there from Philadelphia by the Pinkertons. He was held on an outstanding warrant for horse theft in Texas because the authorities had become more suspicious at this point, and Holmes appeared poised to flee the country in the company of his unsuspecting third wife. Strangely, the murder castle, also known as the World's Fair Hotel, was gutted by a fire started by an unknown arsonist shortly after Holmes was arrested. The plot of the land the hotel sat on was repurposed by the city, and near where the hotel used to stand was built a post office which stood until 1938. According to a newspaper clipping from the New York Times, Two men were seen entering the back of the building between 8 and 9 p.m. About half an hour later, they were seen exiting the building and rapidly running away. Following several explosions on the interior of the building, the castle went up in flames. Afterwards, investigators found a half-empty gas... In the October of 1895, Holmes was put on trial for the murder of Benjamin Peitzel and was found guilty and sentenced to death. By then, it was evident Holmes all had also murdered the three missing Peitzel children. Following his conviction, Holmes confessed to 27 murders in Chicago, Indianapolis, and Toronto, though some people he confessed to murdering were found to be still alive, and Holmes additionally confessed to six attempted murders. At first, no one was sure why Holmes confessed to killing some people who were found to still be alive until it was discovered that Holmes 
was paid $7,500 by the Hearst newspapers in exchange for his confession, which was quickly found to be mostly nonsense. Holmes gave various contradictory accounts of his life, initially claiming innocence, and later he was possessed by Satan. His propensity for lying has made it difficult for researchers to ascertain the truth on the basis of his statements. In addition to being a sociopath, he was a pathological liar and on top of that had a flair for the dramatic and loved to embellish stories. In one example of this, while writing his confessions in prison, Holmes mentioned how drastically his facial appearance had changed since his imprisonment. He described his new, grim appearance as gruesome and taking a satanical cast, and wrote he was now convinced that after everything that he had done, he was beginning to resemble the devil. On May 7, 1896, Holmes was hanged at Moya Mensing Prison in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, which also was known as Philadelphia County Prison for the murder of Benjamin Peitzel. Until the moment of his death, in true, unfeeling, uncaring, sociopathic fashion, Holmes remained calm and unbothered, showing very few signs of fear, anxiety, or depression. His outward appearance he feared some type of karma or form of retribution as he asked for his coffin to be contained in concrete and buried ten feet deep because he was concerned grave robbers would steal his body and use it for dissection. He feared that the very thing he enacted on his many victims of life insurance fraud would be done to him, showing that he knew just how wrong what he was doing was. Holmes was due to be hanged until dead. When the rope dropped, Holmes's neck did not break. He instead strangled to death slowly, hanging openly in the air, twitching, writhing, gasping, and struggling for over 15 minutes before being pronounced dead 20 minutes after the gallows trap had been sprung. And yet even this, in my personal opinion, was too easy of a death for this monster compared to what he put his innocent victims through. Upon his execution, Holmes's body was interred in an unmarked grave at Holy Cross Cemetery, a Catholic cemetery in Philadelphia western suburb of Yeadon, Pennsylvania. Much longer after his death, on New Year's Eve 1909, Marion Hedgepeth, H.H. Holmes's jailhouse acquaintance and newest partner in crime, who had been pardoned for informing on Holmes, was shot and killed by police officer Edward Jaberick during a holdup at a Chicago saloon. On March 7, 1914, the Chicago Tribune reported that, with the death of Patrick Quinlan, an accomplice of Holmes and the former caretaker of the murder castle, quote, the mysteries of Holmes's castle would remain unexplained, unquote. Quinlan had committed suicide by taking strychnine. His body was found in his bedroom with a note that read, I couldn't sleep. Quinlan's surviving relatives 
claimed he had been haunted for several months and was suffering from hallucinations. Sounds like a couple of good cases of karma to me. Much, much later on in 2017, amid allegations that H.H. Holmes had in fact escaped execution, Holmes's body was exhumed for scientific testing led by Janet Monge of the University of Pennsylvania Museum of Archaeology and Anthropology. Due to his coffin being contained in cement, his body was found not to have decomposed normally. His clothes, in 2017, were almost perfectly preserved, and even his mustache was found to be perfectly intact. The body was positively identified by his teeth as being that of Holmes. Holmes was then reburied. In my opinion, they should have burned his useless carcass and repurposed his skeleton for a medical school somewhere. Now that would have been the perfect ending to this story. H.H. Holmes was an intelligent, studious, dapper, determined, sociopathic, pathological liar, fraudster, con artist, womanizer, cold-blooded killer, and America's first ever serial killer. H.H. Holmes was the worst type of monster there is, a human being. One that comes not from folklore, nightmares, or imagination, but one that walks the earth in flesh and blood and does real harm to real, innocent, unassuming people who are unlucky to even have ever met him. H.H. Holmes once summed himself up in a writing stating, I was born with the devil in me. I could not help the fact that I was a murderer no more than a poet can help the inspiration to sing. I was born with the evil one standing as my sponsor beside the bed where I was ushered into the world, and he has been with me since. H.H. Holmes was known by many names and nicknames, some of them including the titles The Beast of Chicago, Dr. Death, The Devil in the White City, and The Archfiend. H.H. Holmes being America's first prolific and identified serial killer means he leaves an interesting and dark legacy and an impact on American history. Even more so when you realize his crimes tie in directly with the World's Fair, which was a major cultural event in its day. With his significance to American history and culture, his story has been covered by many different outlets many times over. Some of the most notable being 2003's book by Arthur Eric Larson, The Devil in the White City, Murder, Magic, and Madness at the Fair that Changed America, a best-selling non-fiction book that juxtaposed an account of the planning and staging of the World's Fair with Holmes' story. The 1975 book The Torture Doctor by David Frank and Depraved, the shocking true story of America's first serial killer by Harold Schechter from 1994. The 1974 novel American Gothic by horror writer Robert Block was a fictionalized version of the story of H.H. H. Holmes. In 2017, History, 
formerly known as the History Channel, aired an eight-episode limited docuseries entitled American Ripper, in which Holmes' great-great-grandson Jeff Mudgett, along with former CIA analyst Amaryllis Fox, investigated clues to attempt to prove that Holmes was also the infamous London serial killer Jack the Ripper. The show concluded with no conclusive evidence that H.H. and Jack were the same man. In 2018, horror writer Sarah Tatlinger published The Devil's Dreamland, poetry inspired by H.H. Holmes. It was a publication of Strange House Books, which won the 2018 Bram Stoker Award for Best Poetry Collection. As of 2019, an adaptation of The Devil in the White City with Martin Scorsese and Leonardo DiCaprio attached as executive producers, is in development with Paramount TV and Hulu. Though it was initially reported in 2015 to be a feature film starring DiCaprio, once Hulu agreed to a partnership with Paramount, the project was announced as a series with no confirmation of whether Scorsese and DiCaprio would actually direct and star in it, respectively. As of 2021, production has yet to commence on the project. H.H. Holmes is a perfect example of an infamous historical figure that was dark and depraved, but nonetheless fascinating to learn about. H.H. Holmes is also a true example of what I preach here inside the monster's lair, and that is, humans are the real monsters in this world. <laughs>